Hello Sword People, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Stephanie Ayuto, who is a former international level sabreuse and a bladesmith, crafting knives, swords, and even straight razors. And I've had a look at her stuff online, not yet had the pleasure of handling any of it, but it looks absolutely lovely. So without further ado, Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So whereabouts in the world are you? So I'm based out of New York City, uh, more specifically in Brooklyn. Okay. Um, I love New York, one of my favorite cities. I'm guessing you pretty much live at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Is that, would that be fair to, fair to guess? I mean, before the pandemic, uh, technically it was the Museum of Natural History that, that I preferred, but, um, but really? yeah, I've been, well, I love, I love history. Um, but I've been certainly to, uh, the Met, MoMA's, um, smaller museums, if you will. Uh, we've got basically all the culture that you could possibly want. Um, I also, I mean, who doesn't love a Broadway show? So before the pandemic, <laughs> literally everything. Uh, since the pandemic, you know, these these walls and the forge is where I spend most of my time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, New York is one of my absolute favorite cities in the world. Uh, if I had lots of money, I'd be happy to live there. But it's one of those places where I think it would be much easier to live there if you are completely loaded. Oh, with, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, I mean, I, so my, my day job, I do, um, business intelligence and advanced analytics for a marketing firm. Uh, so that's, that's how I can afford to live in the city. (laughs) The (laughs) knives is what I do on Saturdays and Sundays sometimes. Um, I, I mean, if it wasn't for the data, I couldn't do the knives. So it's a little. Fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, so worth worth doing the data so you can get the nice of the weekend. Brilliant. So, so whereabouts is the forge? So, the forge is also located in Brooklyn. Um, for those of you who are familiar with the area in uh, Sunset Park, there's this uh, complex called Industry City. Um, it has lots of fun places to eat or drink, but they also have a lot of uh, people who make and craft their own things. Um, so, they have. Uh, Candle makers, um, artisan pastry people, chocolatiers. Uh, we are actually on Distillery Row, so people can go to the different um, uh, whiskey makers, wine makers, beer brewers, and then get drunk and watch us work. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you don't really have to go very far after a day of forging to you know, eat and drink and buy a candle. Pretty- Pretty much. The, uh, the guys that run Industry City, very smart people, um, they, they put us on Distillery Row and then gave us these giant windows surrounding our forge, um, which are soundproof, uh, so that way people don't hear the pinging and can actually have a conversation, which is very smart. Um, but, you know, we're in this fishbowl, so every time we're working, we're constantly being observed. <laughs> uh, uh, what does that feel like? I mean, that would drive me insane. I, I do lots of creative stuff, you know, writing books and what have you, but also woodwork. And having, having a student watching me because I'm teaching them something is fine. But if I'm doing like my own training or, or woodwork or writing a book, I simply cannot abide being watched. 
you know, you get used to it after a while. Um, some of the yeah. times, like, I don't even notice I'm being watched. Um, during, like, I mean, especially when it comes to, to grinding because our backs are to the wall or something. Um, mm-hmm. or, or we're locked in a process that requires a lot of focus. You don't tend to notice them. When it's just forging and because there's so much wait time while you're waiting for metal to heat up, um, you tend to notice the crowds that gather. And then especially if there are children out there, you kind of wave to them and try to get them excited and like pick up the nearest like semi-completed work and show them like this is what we're making. Um, So so I kind of like that aspect of it because, again, it's it's a rare thing to do and you want to spark some sort of curiosity in in kids when they're young. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's great that there are people out there who are willing to be watched doing these things. It's just I'm not one of them. Unless I'm deliberately putting on a demonstration, then yeah, it's like no. If I'm if I'm if I'm actively involved in my own creative process, I just it's like I can't re- I can't write books in cafes, for instance. The notion Fair. of you know somebody might walk behind me, it's like no, can't be done. And even if I'm at, with my back to a wall looking out, and there's there's like too much of my brain is involved in sort of. I don't know, situational awareness. So I basically need to close myself off into a like opaque bubble. <laughs> but um, so we're going to get onto how you got into forging in a minute because I, I know there's a story there. But um, on your about page, it mm-hmm. said you wanted to be a musketeer, not a princess. So my question is, how did you get into the musketeers? What was your route into sword nerdery? So. I mean, I owe a lot of that to just my parents and, and the movies that we watched as a family, uh, especially when I was young. I mean, I think I was quoting Monty Python and the Holy Grail uh, before I really knew what the context was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, I think, like, at, like, two or three, I was saying, you know, my dad was trying to bring me uh, to go to bed or something, and I was like, help, help, I'm being repressed, I'm being repressed. So, <laughs> so like, I've always, I, I mean, we've watched those movies since I was since I was super young, and I guess I always just like the people who who did the adventure and, and, and wanted to be closer aligned to them rather than the people who are waiting to be saved. That didn't seem like much fun. Um, so uh-huh. all of these movies, you know, you see the people who are fencing and the people who are, are sword fighting and, and yeah, like who wouldn't want to dress up as a musketeer for Halloween? That's where the fun is. <laughs> Quite right. Uh, so I have to ask, have you ever seen the movie Barbie and the Three Musketeers? I have two daughters and they absolutely love that film. And it was one of the very few Barbie films. I was happy just, I mean, I'd watch all of them because they ask, because, you know, that's what you do with your kids. But when they said, come here, Barbie, this needs to be it was like, I much prefer that to um, Mariposa Barbie or some of the other ones. So have you ever seen that film? I, I have not seen that one. Um, my nephew uh, also happens to enjoy a good, good sword fight. Um, we've watched the regular Musketeers and also... Uh, what is it like the the Donald Duck Musketeers or the or the the Mickey Mouse Musketeers? There's some sort of cartoon version as well that he's mm-hmm. been in love with. So I've seen those versions, but not the Barbie version. Definitely worth a go. The Barbie okay, version. okay, Definitely the Barbie worth. version. I mean, I'll the, give it. The I'll story give it a go. writing is good, and they have a training montage, which is actually, I mean, it's not real sword fighting training, but it is really really cool and so cool that they have like these four women and and their teacher is this old lady and i knew when the movie started when, when she showed up i knew she wasn't who she was pretending to be i knew she was somebody special because you can tell right but yeah it, the, the training montage is absolutely brilliant 
So all right, yeah. And you might be able to slip that one past your nephew. Actually, I mean, it, there's swords in it, so. <laughs> so and so and and the villain is is voiced by Tim Curry. Who, oh, perfect choice. Right. Perfect right. choice. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's genius. <laughs> okay. Um. All right, but then you got into sport fencing, correct? True, much, much later. Um, you know, in that, in that gap from being the six-year-old who wants to dress up to being a teenager, um, getting into fencing was kind of a, a weird journey. Um, I owe a lot of it to, to my older sister. Um, she, in high school, was looking for a sport where, you know, she could win and didn't really have to work that hard, which in our high school fencing was, yeah, like we did well and, and it wasn't, you know, that much running like track or soccer. So it was easy for her. Um, <laughs> fencing, fencing is for lazy people. I agree. Martial arts are for lazy people. You're not supposed at to the fight. High you're supposed school to win. Level, at the high school level, specifically <laughs> my high school. Yeah. <laughs> like you didn't, you didn't have to run for 90 minutes. Um, so that was, you know, favorable. Uh, but she, you know, she, she became an epi fencer. Um, she really enjoyed it. Uh, she started to, you know, she, got, she was actually pretty good. They got her a coach, um, outside of just the high school team. And so she started traveling to a couple of, of American, um, cups, uh, uh, North American cups, um, just to do these little, you know, competitions. She did very well. Uh, and as a family, we would travel with her and I'd watch her fence and I'd watch everyone else fence when she wasn't fencing because in fencing, there's a lot of waving. Um, so well, in tournaments, so, there's a lot of waiting. Exactly. Um, even yeah. even in like like regular you know high school fencing, I guess you know there's okay two people fence and then there's ten minutes of getting unhooked and unzipped from the actual apparatus and the next person comes up. There's a lot of waiting. Um, but yeah, so I had been watching her go, uh, do this for a while, watching um, other people compete for a while. And then eventually when she was a senior in college and I was still in middle school, um, she noticed that we were short um, enough people to, to do the saber on our fencing team. And so she just asked if I could try out for the team. Um, and just by, I guess, a little bit of natural talent and the fact that I had watched and studied for four years at that point, uh, I happened to beat everyone on the Sabre team in those triads. <laughs> Excellent. And I think, you know, I owe a lot to her because she told my parents, you know, get her a coach. She's, she's good. Um, and it kind of took off from there. Uh, I mean, the high school fencing is, yes, technically where I started, but I didn't spend a lot of my time high school fencing. Uh, I, I immediately got a coach and started at first going out east into Long Island to train, um, multiple times a week. Uh, he was a fantastic coach. We got along very well. But after a few months, he was like, you've outgrown what I can teach you. I'm going to give you to my old coach, um, wow. who happened to be the men's Olympic coach. That so, is very unusual for a coach to have that level of self-awareness. Yes. No, he, he, he was just a fantastic person. Uh, we got along so well. He knew exactly how to keep me uh, engaged in the sport and not discouraged. Um, and he just saw, like, he knew I had talent and that I would work very hard and he wanted to give me the best opportunity. And, you know, that's, that's, you can't, you can't ask for anything else in a person. Um, so yeah, so he, he made the call and the connection. My parents were like, all right, if this is what you want to do, we'll do this. Um, and so I became a member of, at that time, Fencers Club, uh, which later turned into Manhattan Fencing Center. Um, 
and I started going into the city because uh, I used to live out in Long Island. I started taking the train into the city every day after after class and, um, you know, fencing till 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, training back and and yeah, trying to trying to have a full time job as a fencer while I was still a student. Um, it was a little intense, but I, you know, I really liked it. And when you are suddenly this new person that no one, you know, everyone else who had been fencing there had been fencing for a very long time. They knew each other very well and they were very good. Uh, and here's this new person who, what does she know? You know, she's, she's from this know nothing club. Um, so you don't want to be the person that everyone's like, ugh, I don't want to train with her. So you just work very hard and, and dig down and commit into your training. And within a year, I was traveling the nation competing and starting to go to World Cups and go to Poland and go to Hungary and just just kept going. Just didn't want to didn't want to be the weak one there. I mean, say for Saber, Poland and Hungary are really where it's at. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, and again, this was this was at the time where women's uh, Saber in America was kind of dominating the field um, for for, you know, Saber and sorry for Epe and Foil, uh, not so much. But for Saber, we were we were the force to be reckoned with, um, especially after the 2004 um, Olympics, and then solidified in the 2008 Olympics, uh, where we swept gold, silver, bronze. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so yeah. like oh. yeah, so like this was this was the That's this was good. the era to be training. Um, uh, yeah, so so you would go uh, we would we would go to all these places. Um, you know almost every other week in a different country or a different state competing. Uh, and these people, they, you know, I grew up with them. They became my family. And all we wanted to do was just be the best we could be. Uh, we helped each other out. Um, and we gave it our lives for, for years. And some of my friends uh, are still competing. They, they went to 2012, 2016, and just recently competed in 2020. Wow. Okay. So how do you prepare for an international level competition? What are the specifics? A lot of the people listening will be doing like historical martial arts and going to tournaments. And I mean, it's not at the same sort of level in terms of the, the kind of the level of competition. Um, but I think the process of training for tournaments is, is pretty similar no matter what tournaments you're training for. So how, how would you prepare for a tournament? I mean, at the time... Normally, I mean, you know, Monday through Friday, uh, it's just spent at the, at, you know, what we, what you would might call the gym, we would call the, the, the fencing I, I area. I call the south. Yeah. But like, but yeah, so, so wherever people go to train, you know, we have our, yeah. our fencing setups. Um, so two times that week, maybe three times that week, you actually just take a, a class and that has a little bit of calisthenics in it. That has a little bit of, uh, gentle sparring, um, practicing certain maneuvers. Um, you also probably have three to four, um, possibly five, depending on which competition you are and what level you're at, uh, sessions with your coach that week. Um, these are generally 20 minutes, but sometimes they can go longer, uh, where you're just practicing blade work and footwork, um, and just making sure that the muscle memory's there. Um, cause really a lot of it is just training your body to know what to do before your eyes have, have actually seen what's happening. Yeah. 
um, because it's so fast. So there'll be things where, like, you'll be moving up and down the strip through footwork, and your coach and you will just be working on a series of of three, 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 four, three, four, three, five, three, and you're just trying to do this blade work back and forth without missing a beat, and eventually they'll give you a little nod, and that's where you're supposed to actually attack. So you'll be doing that for 20 minutes or 40 minutes, and then the rest is just sparring. Um, so going against your your friends who are there, um, or your frenemies who are there, <laughs> and just having five five touch bouts, 15 touch bouts. Um, just to just to get in the habit of okay next touch okay next touch don't think about what just happened think about what's the next touch um, and just making sure that you you feel confident. Okay, so you're training five days a week. Um, yeah. Getting four or five individual lessons with your coach each week. Uh, <laughs> It's like the average historical fencing club, I think, meets maybe for an hour and a half twice a week. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it's it's a different it's a different world, at least at yeah. least, you know, back in back in the the late aughts, uh, you know, at Fencers Club, there were classes, uh, multiple classes every day of the week. Um, now, some of them were for beginners and some of them mm-hmm. were for the experts. Um, but even when classes were going, there were just people in the club and they were just training together without a Mm -hmm. formalized class or, or sparring together because that's what they needed to do. It's the more you do it, the more you get that 10,000 hours and beyond, um, the better equipped you are to meet an opponent you don't know down the strip. Right. Did you spend much time studying your opponents, like videos of their previous bouts or anything like that? Some people do. Some people do that a lot. Um, it depends who. It depends who the fencer is. Um, some people who like to play the reaction game might spend a lot of time studying and watching video where they can. Uh, and there's certainly a lot of you know for the young fencers, their parents are filming them and they're filming other people as well. And so they'll be like, "Train, look at this person. Look at what they do." Um, but there are other fencers who, again, because it's such a mental head game, they're the ones that want to lead. So maybe they'll maybe they'll just know a couple of things about their opponent, like okay, they like to do this, they like to react to this, or or when you do this, they'll do that. Um, but they don't really want to work themselves up and say, oh, this is an opponent who might beat me. That's once you get into that headspace, you're probably not going to win. Um, it's much better to be like, no, I'm going to control the game. And I'm going to make them react to me. And if what happens in the previous touch did not work out, I will adjust and they will have to react to me. Um, I mean, at least that's, that's, how, that's how I used to do it. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, 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 this is great because um, in this, do you do any historical martial arts? Have you ever? No. Unfortunately, okay. no. I mean, as a, as a, as a child, I did, I did karate for a while, but that's, you know, Shotokan karate. That's that's about the. But, but you've never you've never got into like longsword or rapier or anything like that. No. Okay, fair enough. Um, so you probably don't know that much about the historical martial arts world and how it works and what have you. And it's it's really interesting, I think, for us because basically historical martial arts are probably at about the same sort of place mm-hmm. as fencing was in, should we say, the 1860s, 1870s. Right. Right? Right. Um, and I am, if, if, if things progress as they should, there will probably come a time where there's some 
some something based on historical martial arts at the Olympics, right? And when that happens, we're going to have a really clear distinction between competitors who train to win competitions and uh, historians and martial artists and what have you who train for reasons other than, and there are many reasons other than training for competitions, right? right? So um, some historical martial artists have a background in sport fencing. Many do not. And I think it's really interesting and useful for them to get some kind of insight into what the sport fencing world is actually like. I mean, I was a sport fencer in the at school in the late 80s and at university in the early 90s. And I quit in about 94, 95 because it, I, I wanted to do sword fighting, not tournament fencing, right? I was, I was, it's, it didn't feel... Because the rules of the world back then, it's probably before your time. Um, in foil particularly, whoever was moving forward first had priority, even if the sword was pointed back over their shoulder, right? And it's just like... It's just so it's so not a real sword fight. Right, right. <laughs> right? And, and so it was frustrating. So I wasn't getting what I wanted out of it. So I sort of helped to create this whole historical martial arts thing that then happened. Um, but there's an awful lot of really useful stuff that really helped me in my progression as a historical martial arts instructor. So knowing how to train, knowing what tournaments are, what they're for, what they're good for and what they're less good for. They're really good for like pressure testing, and but they're not very good for getting lots of experience in because there's lots of waiting around. Mm-hmm. Right? If you're there, if you're there for eight hours, you might get like six matches. Right? If you do really well, you might get ten. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I, I can get ten bouts in under an hour. <laughs> well, I mean yeah. that's that's why that's why you know club club sparring is is mm. so beneficial because as right. to your point, you're going you know maybe. Uh, five bouts an hour at the club, you know, just waiting your turn maybe because you don't want to take up a limited amount of strips. But uh, but you know, you're you're getting your workout in on competition day. You're just trying to keep limber <laughs> because you're waiting so long. You don't want to lock up. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So, like, let's say you were going off to I don't know Hungary or something like that for an international level competition. Um, it's a long flight. There's lots of, you know, kind of admin rubbish to get through and, you know, passport control and buying plane tickets and airports and all the admin and sort of waivers and stuff you have to sign when you get to the tournament, all that sort of stuff. And yeah, and then you're supposed to like perform at a high level. So what did you do? If you don't mind sharing, sure. to 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 sort of bring yourself up to that higher level. What what did when you you know you're tired and you're stressed and da, 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 how do you deal with it? Um, it's it's you get into your rhythm. My personal experience is so you know we dorm you know eat breakfast at the hotel. Um, most of the times at the hotel, we would have like some sort of yogurt, egg, or sausage situation. That's just what was mm. available. So have a little bit of protein, and then arrive at the at the competition arena. Um, American team would kind of park as a, as a unit in one place, 
get our bags out, you know, make sure that we have our weapons ready, all of our electrical cord is working, because um, that's, you know, to your point, there's a, there's some paperwork that you have to sign, but a lot of it is making sure that your sta- your mask um, passes the, the stamp test, where they pressure point yeah. it and make sure that you're not actually going to get a sword to the face, uh, making sure that everything's right. Um, lay everything out, and then that's when you start loosening up. Um, some people might spend, uh, you know, a minute or two just running around their little area, Um, maybe doing some footwork as well. Uh, At this point, I would take on my iPod and just start, you know, I'd have a a fencing warm-up playlist, uh, if you will. (laughs) Um, Can can you tell us what's on that? Oh, man, hold on. I might might still have. Let me me see from my my iPod. (laughs) Um, Let's let's see what a a young Stephanie used to listen to. Um... Fencing warm up. Oh, a lot of Eminem on this. Uh, a lot of Linkin Park on this. Okay, yeah. So, so a lot of kind of like angry, angry music <laughs> trying to get into that headspace. Yeah. Um, and then, oh yeah, okay. So by the so I have a couple where I'm just running and like shaking it out, and, yeah. like you know, stretching, doing the arm movements. And then I can see once I start doing footwork, um, I always used to put on Seven Nation Army for my footwork because even though it's it's slow, it's the perfect beat for like the heel, toe, heel, toe mm. advancing of your feet as you go. Um, yeah, I don't know why, but like I always did my footwork to that song. Uh, so yeah, so so a lot of lot of a uh, lot of that going on in the playlist. <laughs> well, I. Um... It's, it's only fair to share. Um, when I'm doing my forms, I'm very off, I very often have the Eye of the Tiger on. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. You got it. You got it. That's right. Yeah, okay. Okay, so, so you're warming up and you've got your playlist going. Um, what happens next? Right. So, so I start doing footwork. Um, at this point, you know, maybe it's about 40 minutes to half an hour before the official start time. Um, mm-hmm. So at that point, you know, everyone kind of takes a second, gets hydrated, maybe people go to the bathroom, because once you have your, um, your whites on, uh, so your, your fencing, fencing clothes, it's very hard to quickly get out of them if you have to go. So yeah. <laughs> everyone takes their time, uh, come back, and that's when you start getting dressed. Um, uh, at this point, a lot of people are just kind of quiet and in the zone, um, just mentally preparing, getting ready, like, okay, you know, what have I been doing really well at lately? What have I been sucking at lately? Um, and just trying to get their, like, mental checklist going. Um, at this point, you might know who's in your pools. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the fencing um, competition format, uh, it's split into two different categories. The first round is pools. So everyone's um, put into groups of maybe between five and nine people, and you fence each other around Robin style um, of bouts up to five touches. Um or in foil and epee, five touches or three minutes, whichever comes first. Saber, it's always five touches. <laughs> um, uh, based on your results from that, they take how many wins, losses, and touches scored um, into consideration, and then they put you into a direct elimination um, table, and that's bouts to 15 with a break at first to eight. Wow, so. okay. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's pretty much how they were doing it. Um, I wasn't at international level. I... I I fenced for my university a few times, and that was about it. I, 
I'll basically you had the bouts to five. You had the bouts to five. Yeah. No, no, we did. We did to oh. fifteen as well. But, you did to but that's, okay. that's, that's the kind of structure I'm familiar with, and we also see similar structures in a lot of the historical martial arts tournaments, also. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so you've got so, your. So we got pools. we got our, our pools. We know yeah. who we're going to be fencing. So we might at this point, if you do care who you're fencing, you'll be like, oh, okay, this person, she. She likes to play with distance, or this person. They like to always do parry. Oh, sorry, a beat attacks, or this person. They'll they'll hit hard, um, that kind of thing. Um, so you you know you're shaking out. At this point, you might grab a buddy um, because again we do travel as a team um, and start doing a couple of just warm up touches. Again, the whole idea is just to keep your body loose and and make sure that um, your reaction times are there. Um, and again, during this time, you're like, okay, this is working for me. This isn't working for me. Okay, I need to stretch a little bit more. And just, again, it's just, it's just a mental checklist that you're doing. Um, at about 10 to 20 minutes prior to the start of the competition, you stop. You might just be stretching at this point and just kind of focusing and listening to your music. And then eventually it's, you hear your name called. <laughs> Showtime. Yeah. <laughs> and you got, you know, if you're a, a foil or an epis, you got three minutes to, you know, for, for, for the first bout. If you're a saberist, it could be over in a minute. <laughs> yeah, and I, I've, seen, I've seen top level saber bouts that were quicker than that. Yeah. Like maybe, maybe actual fencing time somewhere under 10 seconds. And, and, and that's fair. And, he, and here's the thing. So, I mean, there are people who are like, yeah, you don't want to give any touches up, you know, 5 0 the whole time. Person who wins five four the entire time also wins. wins. So it's it's right. it's figuring out you know if you know if I sacrifice this point they'll think that my distance is weak and they'll charge in mm-hmm. and I'll be able to get them in a, a you know attack in preparation. Um, for those of you who don't know what that is, uh, generally um, when someone has right of way, uh, they're the ones that are leading either with footwork or with their blade extended forward, and they're the person that if two people hit at the same time, the person with right of way will get that touch because it was their attack. Um, attack in preparation means that someone who has right of way is coming at you, but before they've had the ability to actually hit you because maybe they've pulled their arm up a little bit, you are actually attacking in their preparation um, thus you get the point and they, they, uh, they don't. So, so again, it's, it's, it's a, a game that you play with distance and with super fast reflexes because you need to find your opening and like surgically go for it and get out of the way before they can hit you. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, that, that's the, the thing that makes a difference. I think between a lot of what we're trying to do with historical martial arts and a lot of what works in tournament is that the tournament is fundamentally a game. And if you win five, four, you win. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, as as a friend of mine who, who was having a discussion with an FA fencer who was saying, "Well, okay, I get you know, if I get the first touch and I can be certain of doubles, I'll just go for four doubles in a row and I'll win five four. And my friend was like, "That's nine dead men, <laughs> right?" I was like, "Yeah, but but it's not it's fencing, right? It's fencing. It's, it's, That's the difference. It's, it's We're not game, right. It's, it's not like, like you know, death." It's like it's like in chess. If I if I sacrifice my my queen and bishops and a rook and both my knights, and I nail you in checkmate with my pawns, I win. You win. That's it. There's there's, there's yeah. no prize for winning with the most pieces left on the board. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no prize for winning with the least hits against you. Right? You just win or you don't. You just win or lose. That's it. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a kind of refreshingly 
straightforward and simple way of defining victory. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's nice. It's I know I know a lot of people who don't they're you know they're in the headspace of well that's not that's not proper sword fighting you know you don't want to you don't want to be hit while you hit someone or you want to touch that would you know cut off their arm or something. Uh, no, that's yeah. that's not the name of the game. It's just did I hit that? You know this this is a game. This is not realistic fencing. This is mm-hmm. I want to win this tournament based on these predefined rules. But exactly. it's still fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's still a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I I remember it. I remember it being fun. Um, and yeah, you're right. But I mean, in historical martial arts, we are often concerned about how much damage would that actually have done and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff because that's what we're interested in. But yeah, the game of fencing is is a is another thing altogether. Um, so why did you stop? So um, back in the like 2000. 10-ish, 2011-ish, um, I started to have a lot of issues with my feet, um, constantly in pain. Um, you know, I would try to take breaks, you know, instead of doing footwork with my coach, I'd just be doing blade work from a chair, um, going to competitions on, you know, you know, taking a lot of, uh, Tylenol or something, just trying to figure out, you know, go get through the pain. You know, you can't take time off because if you do, other people will get better than you. Um, and unfortunately, you know, during that time, after after months, years of being in pain while I was doing this, um, I finally got, you know, I started to see a, a podiatrist and, you know, they tried to give me cortisone injections in my feet to try to figure out, okay, yeah, what, what you know, stop the pains, whatever. Finally, I got an MRI and they're like, you have eroded away all of the cartilage in your toes. Oh my God. Yes. Ouch. Stop running. Stop jumping. Stop. Just stop. And I was like, oh, okay. Ouch. Yeah. So that was very abrupt. Um, so I went from like going and doing this five days a week and traveling every weekend to nothing. Um, and it was a little, it was a little rough for me because this, you know, I had given so much to this sport mm-hmm. that I loved, but through whatever, you know, maybe it was a bunch of injuries that I didn't take care of, um, bone spurts that never healed grinding, you know, working so hard. Because again, I, in a very short amount of time, through a lot of hard work and some natural ability, uh, was able to rise to the level of people who have been doing this since they were seven or eight years old. Um, And I think, you know, the combination of just overworking and not taking care of injuries led to my demise as, you know, a fencer. Um, So I I had to stop. And again, like, you know, I stopped right before the 2012 Olympics um, so I got to see, you know, that was, that was never going to be the one that I was going to go to. That would, that would have been a reach for me, but a bunch of my friends went, you know, I cheered for them, super happy for them. Um, hypothetically, you know, you never know what could happen ever. Right. So this is all with a grain of salt, but hypothetically, if I never got injured and continued to train at that level, 2016 might've been my year. So when that came and went and I saw my friends go, you know, I got a little sad and, because yeah, again, like that could that could have been me, um, but my mom, who you know, you gotta love family. She saw that I was getting a little depressed, and she's like, "You need to find something new, anything." Uh, and she's the one who was like, "Okay, if you can't swing a sword, figure out how to make them." And she gave me my first. Oh, I love your mom. Yeah, yeah, I love my mom. She's amazing. She bought me a, a two-day make-your-own-knife class. Um, this is not who I, I 
spent the past couple of years learning from this with someone else. And, you know, I, I forged and made a knife-like object. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it was not pretty. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a class that gave you an experience, not a class that gave you real information. But I loved it, and I was like, yes, let me, let me figure out how to do this for real. And that's when I found Theo and started to learn from him. Who is Theo? Theo Nez. Um, he is a bladesmith, um, and if you are familiar with the show Forged and Fire, he's been on it twice and won both rounds. He's the one that um, opened up Naz Forge, which is a school for teaching people how to blacksmith and bladesmith. And I've been lear- I started learning from him, eventually became a teacher, and now we, we you know, he, he runs the school. It's his school. But, uh, you know, I help him out. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I, mean, I, you're right. I mean, when when you when you put so much into something and then it goes away, you have to find something to fill that void. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, I guess this is to some people this this will sound like a bit of an odd question, but I think most sport fences will understand it. Most sport fences of my acquaintance aren't actually that interested in swords. True. Very true. Right. Yeah. So, so but, but you got into fencing because you like swords, and so you decided then to start making. So I've always been into arms and armor. Um, okay. You know, as as a family, when we would travel and we would go to different places throughout Europe, and and you know there'd be the museum day, and I'd always want to go to the castle because castles are cool and they have like cool things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would love going to the armory to see all of these beautiful and deadly tools um, that were, that were made. And I just, you know, I love that. That was my, that was, you know, you go, you go to France to see the Mona Lisa. Let me go and see this stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so that love has always been there. And that appreciation has always been there. Uh, getting into fencing, you know, that was a weird thing that, you know, my sister put that spark in motion. I would never, you know, I didn't, didn't think that I would ever be a, a fencer. That was not, that was not part of the growing up plan. Um, but it, it does make sense when you look at everything like, okay, she sure. loved this as a child. She did a years of fencing and understands and appreciates, you know, if you're building something, it has to be functional. And now that I'm a bladesmith, you know, a lot of people want me to do these like wild fantasy or anime designs. And I'm like, it's not, it's not going to be functional. I'm not going to, I'm not going to build this. <laughs> like I will, I will make a functional weapon for you that has elements of fantasy that has elements of anime, but I want it to be functional first. Yeah. So if, if it's not actually going to work as a knife or a sword, you're not interested in making it. I'm not interested in it. No. Cause that's basically sculpture. Yeah. Nothing wrong with sculpture, but there's nothing yeah, wrong I, with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's it's the history and appreciation of these these tools, which is what they are, um, that that makes me want to make you know something that would actually work if you were you know trying to defend a village, <laughs> you know that kind of thing, sure. you know, or 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 the zombie apocalypse that's to come. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, for the zombie apocalypse, I think those fantasy swords will work just fine. You'd you'd be surprised. Some of these people want things that, like, if you hit them, it would actually like. Like it would hurt, like the steel would bend, and like your knuckles would punch something. Like they want these weird futuristic things uh, that don't make. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> okay, so um, we don't often get smiths on the show, and um, 
I, it would be it would be silly to waste the opportunity. So, what is actually the process of making a knife? Where do you start, and how does it finish? Sure, sure. So, um, I mean, everything starts with the steel type that you want to use. Um, so, when we're forging things, uh, we want to use a high carbon steel. Um, because that retains an edge much better. Um, you can harden it. It's, it's, it's the reason why stuff that's made today is much better than the stuff that was made in years, you know, 200, 300 years ago when they didn't have the science to make these steel um, alloy compositions as strong as they are right now. Um, so some smiths have a favorite um, uh, type of high-carbon steel that they work with. Um, you'll hear the terms like, um, 1095 or, or, uh, W1 or something, you know, different, different types of alloys. Uh, I personally prefer working with ADC or V2, um, for swords or knives, just because so, sorry, I know so ADC or V2. Okay. ADC or V2. So it's got uh, chromium and vanadium in it. There, there you go. There, there we yeah, go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, so I prefer working with that medium, um, uh, just because a lot of, even though it doesn't start the process, what comes later, and I'll get into that in a bit, the, the thermocycling and the heat treating process, I know that very, very well. Um, and even if I don't have a temper oven, I can do it with my eyes alone. I'll get into that. Um, (laughs) but the other thing that I'm working with a lot is 1095. Um, and that is because we are a, a school and a lot of our classes we do with 1095 because it's easier for new smiths to move that steel um, versus something that, as you work it, it actually gets hardened. Um, so that's so those are the two things that I work with most of all. So I'll take my steel. They come in big, long bars of varying widths and thicknesses um, that you take into account when you, uh, you know, if you're making a certain blade, you don't want to start with something that's going to be an impossible task for you to draw out in a certain dimension. So you get that piece chop off uh, enough of it that you can make whatever you're going to make, and then you get to work. Um, Normally, my process is, you know, through the act of forging, so heating the the steel up and hammering it out, I first um, uh, do the handle. Um, So you'll make a little indent where where you want that that initial handle to be, um, shape it, and draw it out. Once you have your handle shape, you have the rest of your blade, you might start working the tip at this point. Um... Now, depending on the blade shape is uh, interesting because if after you make the tip, once you bevel it, and bevel is the act of pinching one side of the metal out, um, the tip will actually move and curve up. Um, in a sword, this is how you can get a very nice curve in a saber or um, a katana or wakazashi. Just by doing one side, it naturally curves. Um, so if you want that tip, so if your knife is here and you want that tip up here, your tip's going to start down here because the act of beveling is going to push it back up. So you okay, need to... Should, um, this is audio only. This so is no audio one can see only. What your just in. But, but um, if, let me just summarize what I just saw. So basically, because you're going to hammer out the edge and that's going to push the tip up, you initially forge the tip kind of down and then right. let the forging process of the edge push the tip back up to where you want it to be. Absolutely. Um, so, so for those of you who might want to search um, uh, pictures to to understand this process, um, if you look at a sheep's foot type knife, you will see that it come it comes from the top from the spine. It comes down 
Um, mm -hmm. So that's kind of the shape that you would start your point. So that way, once you bevel it, what it will then do is it'll push that tip up and the tip would then become a slight drop point. Uh, so if you search those terms, you might see where a tip would start and where it would end, depending on the forging process. Um, so, so you've got your tip, you've got your bevel, uh, which comes after forging the tip. Um, at that point, you're planishing, so lots of strokes that are not too hard, very soft strokes that are just meant to even things out and keep them on a plane. Um, and then you have your basic knife shape. Um, at this point, depending on what type of finish you want, you might grind the whole thing for a very clean finish, or you might grind only your bevels, so that way you have what's called a forge finish. Um, a forge finish leaves some of the pattern that you get from forging on the knife uh, as a, just a cool artsy thing. Uh, doesn't doesn't add anything, doesn't take away anything. It's just for pure pure visuals. Um, uh, but then you'd start grinding and, and making sure that your profile shaped um, and that that uh, everything's nice and neat. At this point, because the seal's soft and it's been ground, and you're you like what you see. Um, you then want to start the thermocycling process. This is all part of the heat treat. So the thermocycling process is um, taking your blade and bringing it up to critical temperatures and letting it cool down to room temperature very slowly. The reason why we do this is because through the act of forging and hitting this steel as hard, not as hard as we can, but pretty hard, <laughs> um, uh, you've taken the metal structure um, and made it become chaotic. Um, so it's, it's, I know you can't see what I'm doing with my hands. <laughs> so you're, you're taking, you're, you're making, you're making it become very chaotic and you need to relax it. Um, so all of the, that, all that's, um, the molecules and the, the grain structure of the metal is becoming in line. And to do this, we want to essentially relax the steel. This is why we bring it up to a critical temperature and let it cool down. Every time we do this, it becomes the, the molecule structure, the grain structure of the metal becomes less chaotic and more in line. Um, so we bring it up to a certain degree, let it cool down. The next step is we bring it up almost as hot as the first step, um, but depending on the, the steel type that you start to work with, it might be 100, 150, 200 degrees cooler than that first step. Um, and you do that three maybe four times, you know, if you really want. Um, but the last time that you do that, that's the annealing step. This is where generally we actually will leave the blade in the kiln to let it cool down um, to room temperature much uh, slower than if we just left it out. Um, annealing, it it makes the, the blade as relaxed as it possibly can be. If you have a lot to grind on your blade beyond just the bevels, you need to remove a lot of mass, it's best to do this at the annealing stage uh, because the metal is so soft, it, you, you're not going to chew through a bunch of um, sanding belts. <laughs> so, so, that's what, so that's what the annealing stage has done. Now your metal is all relaxed. All of the grain structures go in the right way. Uh, so now the next part of this heat treating um, process is to actually harden the blade, which is the act of quenching. So taking it, heating it back up to that critical temperature, and plunging it into a medium. Um, the medium that we use right now is uh, oil, um, Parks 50, I believe. Uh, you might see some people who try to quench in water. Uh, there are water hardening blades. There are also air hardening blades, um, or steels, rather. Uh, we the, the metal that we use at the forge tends to work best when you just quench it in, in oil. Um, so this is, again, bringing it back up to that critical temperature and immediately plunging it into the oil. 
Now, I should interject at this point that in yeah. Conan the Barbarian, the original Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, when they're making a sword at the beginning, firstly they pour molten metal into a mold, which is a terrible way to make a blade, unless it's bronze, perhaps. And then they quench it in a snowdrift. It's not going to work very well, is it? <laughs> it's not going to work at all. That blade is going to shatter. So, so talk about just the snow aspect. Um, when we quench our blades, what we do before we actually quench it is we actually we have we have an official tool, the quenching stick. It's just a piece of mild steel that we heat up and plunge into oil. <laughs> but it's, it's, so we we take it and we do that first before we do our blade to actually bring the temperature of the oil up from room temperature a few degrees. Because what we want to do is we want to slow down just a little bit that process from going from super hot to, you know, room temperature yeah. um, or close to. Uh, so, you know, if you if you don't pre-quench, um, you're at risk of having like a little bit of a flare up that happens because the temperature is so different between your blade and the oil that um, a fire will actually shoot up from your, your quenching. See, I've done tool. that. And You've it done was that? great. Yeah, when, when I quenched my, my kitchen knife, we're, we're going to talk so, about my knife in a minute, but yeah, it was, we, so we got claimed and we liked it. You don't want that to happen. But it's fun. It's I know, fun. It, looks, it looks so cool. It looks so cool. But when you're doing that, you're putting, you know, you, you have the potential, not all the time, but you have the potential to put unnecessary stress into your blade. Okay. So we want to avoid that. Um, now for kitchen knives and things, okay, like you're not, you're, you're, you're probably going to be fine, but if you are making a sword, uh, that would be then, you know, potential weak spots in the sword where later on it might break because it's a little too brittle. Um, so that's why we don't want those flare ups. Uh, if you do happen to watch Forge and Fire and see those flare ups, they shouldn't be happening. <laughs> um, but it says forged in fire. Yeah, yeah, we heat it up in the fire. Okay, right, right. <laughs> so you don't cool it down in the fire. That, that, you don't cool that it makes... down in the fire. Okay, fair enough. No, fair. Okay. Um, and 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 this is this is a you know for for those of you that are very interested, this is um, uh, interesting thing. Before we actually quench, you don't want the blade to get too hot. Um, you want the blade to get to the temperature where it becomes demagnetized, and not a step further. Um, so, so when the metal becomes demagnetized and actually, you know, you can have a magnet next to your, next to your forge and literally bring it out, test it against the magnet and put it back in just to see, you know, if you don't have a kiln that, you know, you can set it and forget it. If you're working specifically with just a forge, you can do that. And that's how, you know, this is the temperature for whatever blade I'm working with that I can, I can quench it now. Um, some people who don't want to use magnets use salt. Salt will, uh, melt at that temperature. Um, I don't like using salt because salt melts at one temperature and different steels require t um, quenching at different temperatures. I was so, just about to ask you that. <laughs> <laughs> I like the magnet method. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, you can also train your eyes. And I'm, I, this is, this is um, calling out a point I mentioned earlier about how I can quench ABCRV2 or do the whole heat treat with my eyes. Um, once you know, so during the heat treat, when you're bringing it up and letting it cool and bringing it to a, a second, you know, high temperature, letting it cool and then a third high temperature, um, based on what that first temperature was, you're looking for different signals in this um, brightness of the metal and also the color of the metal. So we'll say, you know, forging temperature, you're looking for a bright yellow 
um, uh, color in your metal. Um, thermocycling, you're looking for a slightly less bright, um, reddish orange hue, um, for the first step. And the second step will be less orange, more red. And the fourth step might be very dim red. Um, and I, I say this, it's different to everyone. Everyone sees things differently. It's also different if you're working outside versus inside, how much light there is. But based on what I'm looking at, I can tell, oh, this is, this is the right temperature for this steel for this part of the process. So back to quenching, when you're looking for it, you don't want it to get white hot or yellow hot. You're looking for pretty bright reddish oranges, oranges, um, and you're wanting to make sure that you're heating the blade evenly. So because the tip and the edge are so thin, they will heat up quicker than the spine. That's okay. You don't want your spine to be particularly hard. You want it soft because that will absorb shock later on if you wanted to like knock it into a coconut or something. Um, so a soft spine is fine, but you don't want to overheat your edge or your tip. So you're, you might be what's called um, loving the forge, which is moving your blade in and out of the forge at a temperature. <laughs> I can see why you call it that. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, you're, you're pumping your blade in and out of the forge, making sure you're, you're not overheating a specific spot. So everything's a consistent, um, and, temperature. And S- seven nation army would be the right kind of, yeah. <laughs> um, and then once you find that right hue, you can test it against your magnet, or if you're working in a kiln, it beeps at the right temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, and here you're, you know, a nice consistent red, um, cherry red throughout the whole thing. Uh, and that point is when you plunge it into the oil. Um, at this point, you want to have uh, kind of like a bouncing um, action, uh, very slight, not side to side, just up and down bouncing action of, of your blade in the oil um, to make sure that there's no pockets of air and gas that are released that might also cause a flare up. Um, and just make sure that you're trying to bring down that temperature um, quickly, but not too quickly. <laughs> Uh, also the reason why you want to go straight up and down and not side to side is at this point your blade might warp so if you go to side to side your chances of warping your blade increase greatly up and down um, you're less likely to warp Uh, but regardless after this we always bring it to a straightening jig which is two you know angle irons (laughs) very fancy terms for not fancy tools Um, put that into a vise and just clamp it down um I do this no matter what, uh, you know, some people do this only when they see a warp, but I just let it cool down, uh, completely in that, in that clamped, um, angle iron straightening jig setup, um, just so that way there's no possible chance of warpage. Um, sometimes, you know, depending on how good you are at forging and grinding, you might have places that are a little bit thicker, thinner, some areas that when it's cooling down, um, and the air hits it, it might cause a warp later on. This prevents that. Okay. Pause here. Do you have any questions? <laughs> no, no, this, this is great because I'm I'm comparing it in my head to you know I've I've been to a forge twice for two kind of make a knife in a day workshops. We talked about it before we started recording, and um, I'm I'm sort of comparing your method to Sergio's method, and they're not identical, but they're they are similar. And of course, his is adapted for getting a complete beginner into the forge at like eight thirty in the morning. And out with a finished knife at like 4.30, 5 p.m., right? Right. Which is different to when you're making 
knives over whatever period of time they need to be made in. And so, so I, I, I can sort of see where things have been adapted for, you know, you know, for the fact that it, the whole thing needs to be done, handled included, by the end of the one day. Ab- absolutely. So our, our quickest class that we offer is a two-day knife-making class. Mm-hmm. We skip a lot of steps. Not that, not that it, it's a bad knife. It is a fine knife. But we know what steps we need. We can skip to get a good result. Sure. Um, this is if you really want to know how to make it. Um, so yeah, so, so we've quenched it. We've cooled it. The last step of this heat treating process is the temper. Um, the reason for this is we just put a lot of stress into that blade to make it hard. Once we quench it, it is hard. It will take an edge and it will hold an edge. But it's also brittle. It's like glass at this point. You hit something with it, it will break. Um, so we put it in, um, back in the kiln uh, or the easy bake oven that we have. It's, it's literally just a little toaster oven. Um, and we, depending on the uh, steel type, we'll heat it for, um, two, two hour sessions or four hours total at a temperature between 400 or 550 degrees. Um, this adds, that's Fahrenheit, right? That's Fahrenheit. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Do, do that in centigrade and you're going to ruin your knife. Don't, don't do that in centigrade. No, no, no. Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. Um, okay. Sorry. Silly American. Uh, <laughs> using using metrics that make no sense. Uh, so Which yeah, aren't so, even metric. You're right. You're sorry. Using, using units that make no sense. Well, they're metrics, um, but they're just not metric. Just not metrics. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. So, so we'll heat it between 400 and 550 degrees, depending on uh-huh. um, the steel that we have and the hardness that we want to achieve. Um, if you are making a sword, chances are that you will want it to be a little less hard. So when you're hitting it, it will bend and come back and not break. So that's why we'll heat it at a, a higher temperature for swords than we might for, um, let's say, kitchen knives that we want just you know pretty hard so they can just consistently cut things up. Um, and they're not going to take that much damage in the kitchen, let's be real. Um, at this point, we've tempered it. We've introduced a little bit more heat to it so it's not so brittle. Uh, we finish grinding it. Um, we might, we'll hand sand it at this point if we want it nice and shiny, slap a handle on it, shape that handle, and then the last thing... I don't thing believe is, for one second that you slap a handle on it. No, I think no, you no. very, very... Because <laughs> that's one thing that even non-specialists can spot is a badly at- attached handle. Fair. By, the t- by slapping a handle... I mean, you know, and this is, depending on if you have a full tang, a through tang, a hidden tang, um, it could take way more time or way less time. Uh, but in your class, I assume you had a full tang blade, you had two knife scales that full, you full shaped. Full tang blade and scales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And on my, my first course where we I made, um, I, I wanted to make a kiridashi, which is a Japanese-style marking knife for woodwork. And because they're very small, and you know the whole thing is about five inches long. I, I can do imperial, uh, about five inches long, and the actual cutting edge is about inch and a quarter, something like yeah. that. Um, he said, "Well, why don't we make three? So I made a right-handed one, a left-handed one, and a sort of double, double-handed one. And making because there are no handles to make, it was dead easy. But the second time when I made the kitchen knife, um, yeah, it's got these two scales on it, and that's what you expect on the kitchen knife, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, no, this that's that's perfect. You know, you want generally speaking, uh, full tang blade. You know, your holes are probably drilled after the annealing process that I mentioned earlier, where the metal's nice and soft, um, just to make it easier for you. You can drill um, a fully hardened blade. I've done that many times. Um, you just need to use the right bits for it and go slowly, so you don't break anything. Well, so you wouldn't normally um, harden the tank particularly. When we uh, when we quench, we quench. You know, dunk the whole thing in. We dunk the whole thing in. Okay. We dunk the whole thing in. Um, again, if one part of the blade cools faster than the other, um, or doesn't, or or doesn't get as hot and doesn't cool down, like again, you're creating possible stresses in that blade. Okay. Some people will go in afterwards and with a with a torch, um, go in and soften the tang or soften the spine. That's absolutely something they do. Um, but for the purposes of, of the things that I make, I just, I harden the whole thing. Why not? Okay. Why not? I temper the whole thing. So, so it's, it's all, it's all cohesive. Um, uh, but yeah, so, so you've drilled, drilled your holes. Um, you've taken your scales, uh, where the part in the, the front of the blade or towards the front of the blade of your handle, you'll shape that first, um, so you might want a little curve or, or, you know, whatever, whatever handle design you want, you'll shape that first, you'll sand it down because once it's affixed to the blade, that's the hardest place to reach. Um, but everything else you can just, you know, drill your holes through, use epoxy, glue it together, um, and then let it cure. That might take about 30 minutes if it's five minute epoxy, you know, four hours if it's 30 minute epoxy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Those, those times on the epoxy thing are absolute bloody lies. <laughs> <laughs> and so much can can affect it. If it's humid that day, it's going to be right. way longer. Like, yeah. So um, the 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 time is an illusion. Um, but yeah. So you let that you let that um, cure and dry, and then eventually it's just shaping it. Uh, you can do that at the grinder to remove the majority of that handle material, and then you might switch to files and sandpaper to get the shape that you want. Um, now, as far as like how much time has everything taken forging? Depending on your lever, level of expertise, you can forge out a blade very easily in less than three hours. Um, the grinding takes a bit more time because, you know, you want to make sure that you're not accidentally putting in too much pressure in a certain area and you want something very, very nice. Um, heat treating takes a long time because you're waiting for things to heat up and cool down, waiting for paint to dry. Um, but hand sanding, that can take hours Uh you know, if you're trying to get a sword to a mirror polish, you're going to spend over 10 hours hand sanding that sword. <laughs> um, okay. And then handle work, depending on the complexity of the design, again, kitchen knife versus a sword, guards, uh, you can spend 20, 30 hours just doing the fit and finish work of, of assembling mm -hmm. a guard, sword collars, handles, um, pummels, all of that fun stuff. Um, and then once it's glued up, we generally, uh, depending on if it's stabilized or unstabilized wood, we'll give it a sealing coat um, of, of whatever medium we like to use, whether that's uh, white bond poly, um, uh, butcher block conditioner, uh, axe wax, um, just anything to, to give it a better handle experience and a nice little shine. Yeah. You know, people wonder why my favorite sword, I'm just going to, I know it's not really fair to listen, but I will put a picture of show notes but she's gonna this, get me this this was made by my friend jt palica and oh gorgeous it is, it is a pattern welded longsword 
which is just oh, a crazy yeah. thing. Yeah. It's absolutely beautiful. And there are the pictures in the show notes. But, you know, he's my friend. We've been friends for a really long time. And when I, I saved up enough money and I, I all of that sort of, people were really, really surprised when I told them that I spent more on that sword than I spent on my car. But I'm not. You know, <laughs> but now, yeah, you're not because, because not. You, you have some idea of how much work went into it, right? And how much time it took. And, you know, the material costs are trivial, but the time, oh my God. So, so I mean, to me, I was totally happy with that price because honestly, I care much more about swords than I do about cars. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, it, it, it often surprises people to find that, you know, they could, they could get, I mean, we're not talking about, you know, brand new Ferrari sort of price. Right, talk, right, we talk, right. We talk about, you know, you can get a decent, a decent small car secondhand for much less money than I pay for that sword. Absolutely. Um, generally, there are two types of people who are inquiring. Uh, people who, you know, say, oh, I want all this, I want all this. And we're like, okay, it's going to take, you know, six to eight months and it will cost this much money. And they go, what? I thought it was going to be a hundred dollars. And we're like, no. <laughs> they're yeah. like, but I see it, I see it online for a hundred dollars. And I'm like, no. No, you don't. <laughs> you see uh, a child's like, drawing of it online for a hundred dollars. Uh, that's, that's the majority of people. Um, and then there are the people who actually, you know, end up buying commissions and they're the ones that are like, yep, that makes sense. Or, or what if I wanted it this way? And you're like, yeah, that would add this much money. And they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, we can do that. And you know, they, they've done a little research and, and kind of know what to expect. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, yeah, I have a question. I'm a woodworker. Mm-hmm. Primarily, in, in from from in terms of craft, at least I'm a woodworker, and I have this absolutely glorious set of chisels that I bought recently. And um, I'll again, I'll put a picture in the show notes. And they have fabulous blades on them, right? Beautifully shaped, beautifully polished, and they hold an edge so much better than the next best chisels. And the reason the manufacturers give for that is that they have been cryogenically treated. So they've been um, put in a freezer, basically, and brought down to like 70 degrees centigrade below freezing or something like that. Okay. Now, I don't dispute that they have been cryogenically treated, and I absolutely don't dispute that they have... They hold an edge like you would not believe. I mean, the first time I used one of these, I was like, why don't I have to sharpen it now? Hang on, I've been doing this for ages. How come I, how is it still sharp, <laughs> right? What is your take on the cryogenic thing? I haven't tried it. We don't have that yeah. set up yet. Um, and I am not a scientist enough to know why that is producing a better edge. Um, I think, you know, as far as before we invest in the tools to do that in our forge, we want to see a little bit more research on it Um, because it is, you know, everyone, everyone always wants to have like a new cool tool to use or a new skill, whatever. And that's fine. That's how, that's how things get better. Um, But the reason why we trust the weapons that we make in our forge is because we, we know these processes. We know them very well. We have them down to a science. Um, I know exactly what temperatures to bring things up and let things cool down to. Um, This is entirely new to us. Uh, It's new to the game. Uh, I don't want to poo-poo anything because, you know, 
why? If it works, it works. But it's just something that we haven't invested the time to, to learn about yet. Because yeah. as far as I'm aware, you can't just stick it in your freezer at home and expect good yeah. results. It needs to be yeah. really, really cold to make a difference. Possibly. Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, again, okay. again, it's 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 magic to me that people are trying this and it's working for them. Um, and oh, it I, might I, only be I can Sorry? vouch for these I can vouch for these chisels. They are stunning. It and, also and do you know the steel also, type? I I can look it up for you. Um, please. I, I may I may just edit out the typing e bit, but hang on a second. Okay. But if I go to well, I got them from a shop called Classic Hand Tools. How's this for luck, right? Um, we moved to Ipswich about five years ago, which is a town in, in England, which is about 70 miles northeast of London. And when I was going online to buy some uh, woodworking tools of some description, I forget exactly what, I realized, I looked at the phone number on Classic Hand Tools website, and I realized it's an Ipswich phone number. And so I looked them up in a map, and they are three miles from my house. Right. So I guess the real question is, yeah, so there's no wonder why I have no money. (laughs) I have lovely tools with a shop like that three miles from my house. Honestly, I think it was probably a good thing that we had the lockdown because otherwise I would be there every weekend. (laughs) Fair, Um, fair. Okay, the the tools are called. They're made by a company called Narex, Narex. and the and the the model is the Richter R I C H T E R. It's a beveled chisel, and they they are stunningly, stunningly good. But it's not telling me what steel they're made of. I'm on the classic hand tools website, and it, I I can look it up. Tell you what, I'll look it up and I'll put it in the show notes. Oh no, sorry, it says it says here yes. Cabinet makes it with forged from high quality CRV steel, which is chromium vanadium, obviously. But and it says they are cryogenically treated and tempered to at least sixty-two Rockwells. Okay, I... you wouldn't want for a sword. It's way too way too hard for a sword. Way too hard. Sword way shattered. too hard. Yeah, but for yeah, a chisel, no, you, you want you fine. want in the in the mid to high fifties for a sword. Um, but okay, so uh, having a very high hardness that retains the edge better. Um, they probably could achieve that without it being, you know, frozen. <laughs> but if they're getting a consistent result with the freezing, oh, then, and, and yeah, sure. I, I, I think it's, <laughs> these things are always out of stock because literally every online woodworker, you know, like Rex Kruger and, and you know, there are, there are millions of them. Everyone who's tested them has got... Okay, they're about a third the price of the high-end American-made ones, like um, or the Canadian ones like Veritas or um, Lee Nielsen or whatever. They're about a third the price of those, and they are every bit as good. I, I don't know how they're doing it, but, that, but that's why they're always out of stock, because everyone, everyone who knows anything about chisels and, and sort of comments about them online says they're wonderful and then all the woodworkers go out and buy them and so then I mean I waited nearly a year for I bought one to see what they were like and then I contacted the shop and said I want the rest of the set and they were like okay and it took a year for them to come in (laughs) well I mean hey look 
I, I do not doubt that they are phenomenal chisels. Uh, I do not doubt that this process is working. Uh, we would have to, we would have there. I'm we would have to really research how this yeah, setup sure. works, what metals um, or what steel types uh, that it works with. Yeah, it works for because I don't know if it does it for everything. Um, and they they just said ADCRV. Sorry, they just said CRV. They did not say. Yeah, that, that's what's okay. on the Classic Hand Tools website. But I'm, I could probably find out more from Narex themselves. But if I do, I'll stick it in the show notes. There's no need okay. to worry about it. Just, have you ever just, made any woodworking tools? Uh, I, I have not. Um, okay. That's not to say that I, I can't. I just, you know, I, I tend to make what people want to buy at this point, which means mm. I make a lot of kitchen knives. Because <laughs> <laughs> more people more people are like, yeah, well, you know, I've been cooking a lot, so why don't I get a nice knife? Um, so, yeah, so I do a lot of kitchen knives. Um, I don't even get to do that many swords because uh, swords take a lot of time. And, you know, if I'm doing that, that means I can't do the three kitchen knives I could make in this time it would take me to make one sword. Um, so, you know, it's it's a little bit of a trade-off. Um, but I've, I really want to step into that historical weapon recreation space and do that more. Um, I'm hoping that's something I can do in the future. Uh, and then also more of the ceremonial knives. So my brother-in-law is from Scotland. I want to make a bunch of skindus. I want to make a bunch of... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, you're going to show me a uh, skin do now. Oh, oh, I have I have drawers and drawers of knives, as you can probably imagine. Um, ah, I will put a picture in the show notes, otherwise it's totally unfair on me. Um, ah, where the hell is it? Oh my god, maybe it's in a different drawer. I have too many drawers full of knives. <laughs> no, I will, I, will, I will send you a picture, which is just okay. on the Oh, here it is. Um... Again, this is by JT, and oh, nice. this, this this was the first knife I ordered from him, and I said, I have this much money, can you make me a knife for that much money? And he was like, yes. So I said, okay, there you, there you go, there's the money, right? And so he made me a knife that's like four or five times more expensive than the money I gave him because he had a completely free hand and he was having fun. And because I lived in Scotland at the time, he made me a ski and do, Oh, that is a, gorgeous. Oh, you've yes. got the Damascus pattern in there. That's got nice stain, file stainless, work. Yeah, stainless Damascus file work on the thing. And the um, the sort of pommel area or the, the cap at the top and the bolster are heat-colored titanium. And the handle is, uh, it's one of the tropical harbors. I, th- I think it might be Cocobolo. I can't remember. Nice. Um, but yeah, it's oh, a beautiful thing. It it's is gorgeous. <laughs> oh man, your buddy's, your buddy's forging stainless Damascus. He's got he's oh, got an impressive setup, huh? He Sorry? has been. For, yeah, he has been yeah. for years. Yeah, he, I mean, he made this for me in probably ninety eight, ninety nine, something like that. So he he has a impressive setup, and so the reason yeah. why, uh, you know, for those of you who are listening in, why I'm so impressed in forging stainless, let alone forging stainless Damascus is when you forge stainless, so when you forge regular high carbon steel, um, you never want to forge it when it's too cold because you could induce stress fractures into it and the blade can break later on. Um, But you have a pretty wide window of of how cool you can let your blade get while still working it. For stainless, that window is, again, I'm going to use Fahrenheit, like within 100 degrees. Um, it is a very, very short window. So it's very impressive that he's been, you know, 
to me uh, that he can he can do the the uh, the stainless Damascus. Um, he he probably has a very intricate setup at home. Uh, really, it's not that intricate. He has a, for the stainless Damascus. He has a gas forge, and he has um, sort of various quenching tanks and things. He built a quenching tank for doing swords, so that he puts a hole through the tang and hangs the sword blade. Mm-hmm, pin, mm-hmm. and so it can go straight down and also he, he can anneal them in these tanks so the gravity is keeping them straight which really helps apparently mm-hmm. so he says like the uh, it, it does it sword. does yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, pat- the pattern welded longsword I showed you it took him I think like three or four goes he made like three or four blades before he, there was one he was willing to let out of the shop because that's, because they get to that length when you pull them out of the forge gravity makes them bend a little bit and in the areas which aren't quite at aren't at the kind of optimal temperature it induces these little cracks in the in the pattern welding and it's like mm-hmm. he says and he showed me these blades and do you know what they look like to me they look like absolutely gorgeous blades that i would have been completely happy with but he wasn't letting them out of the shop no no he he's he's <laughs> absolutely right i agree <laughs> uh brilliant um Okay, I do have uh, one sort of final question. Uh, you know, you, you've done all sorts of interesting things. So I have to ask, what is the best idea you've never acted on? The best idea I've never acted on. <sighs> Are we talking about a project I want to make or... How you interpret the question is as interesting as any other aspect of the answer. I mean... I'd like to say that I'm a type of person who acts on the things that I believe in. <laughs> That's, honestly, honestly, a, a goodly proportion of my interviewees, this is one of my standard sort of interview questions is to kind of get people thinking about things. Mm-hmm. Um, quite a lot of, the sort of people who end up on my show tend to be the sort of people who actually act on ideas, which is how they've sort of done stuff, which has brought them to my attention. Um so it's actually fairly common to hear, well, actually, you know, if it's a good idea, I act on it. And if it's a bad idea, I don't. And so, no. So it's perfectly legitimate to have that as your answer. But I think, no. looking from the look on your face, I think that there was something that popped into your mind that didn't quite make it out of your mouth. So there's, so, I mean, there's something that I haven't acted on yet. Okay. But that's not to mean that I won't in the future. So as, you know, in the beginning of this interview, I said, you know, I'm, I, I do data analytics as my, my main job. Um, eventually I do want to stop doing that and do the sword and knife thing full time. Um, it's just figuring out when as the right opportunity. Uh, cause you know, it's very scary going from a stable, stable lifestyle to the lifestyle of an artist. (laughs) Um, so it's something that I will act on eventually. It's just finding the right time. Also, it's really hard. I mean, I used to work as a cabinet maker mm-hmm. and an antiques restorer. So the product leaves your shop and you get paid for it. And that's that. Right. So you are entirely dependent on a production schedule and making mm-hmm. enough stuff or fixing enough stuff and getting it out the door mm-hmm. to keep enough money coming in to actually keep the lights on. Right. Mm-hmm. It is hard. Um, it is hard. If I, if I don't make a suggestion... Course. thing that I found really helpful because as a, as a martial arts instructor I had the same problem you know I show up and teach classes I get paid I don't show up and don't teach classes I don't get paid right right um, 
But I found that first off writing books not only got me more teaching gigs, but also eventually provided a steady sort of income. And mm-hmm. producing online courses has also produced steady income that's not dependent on me actually showing up to work on any given day. Right. right? So then, then you're producing a product which you can sell over and over again without having to reproduce it. Right. Mm-hmm. So it might be worth thinking about. How to get that passive income going so I can do, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And it could be knife-related. I mean, you know, you could have... So so that's the thing. Like, it's something that I haven't factored on yet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I often joke, oh, when I retire, I'll take up blacksmithing (laughs) full-time. But uh, (laughs) But your joints won't take it. Your joints won't stand it. (laughs) I mean, you've got no cartilage left in your toes. If you're not careful, you have none left in your shoulders either. I'll get a power hammer. It's fine. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so, so it's just, it's figuring out how to do it well. Um, cause once I commit on something, you know, I'm, I'm in it. So, sure. so yeah, so that, I think that would be my answer. Okay. As an, another thought, so another thing brings to mind, generally speaking, producing stuff. And you see this in, in the furniture world all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, also in, in gunsmithing and what have you, you're either producing lots of things at a relatively low price or small or, or a few things at a very high price. And the right. people who make serious money are either major companies producing lots of things at a low price or people like, um, who's that artist? Chap who, who put a cow in formaldehyde and called it art. I want to say David Hockney, but I'm not sure it's him. Um, anyway, multimillionaire because people will spend huge amounts of money on his paintings and mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, what have you because he's marketed them correctly. He's marketed them as art rather than as tools. Um, That's fair. So, so you know, if what what once once it starts, okay, I can buy a decent kitchen knife for twenty dollars. Absolutely, yeah. Right? But you know. One from the famous Stephanie Ayuto, that's maybe five thousand dollars. Not Ten. yet, but eventually. No, maybe. not yet, not yet. But, but, but that's but that's but that's the that's the you know if you, if if you're going to make a living from making individual objects, mm-hmm. I think probably you want to you want to find the people who will pay any amount of money for that object because and a lot of that a lot of that happens to do with just you know self-branding. Um, yeah. a lot of it is, you know, first, first I'll have to get, you know, the, the journeyman, um, you know, check mark and then the master Smith check mark, because that adds intrinsic value to your work. Um, absolutely. So it's, it's figuring out, you know, the roads you need to take to get to that place. So, so we can look forward to you coming back on the show to tell us about your, um, new business sometime soon. Hopefully. I would, love, I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you very much indeed for joining me today, Stephanie. It's been lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure getting to know you. And yeah, I love, first of all, I love to see, I know everyone else can't see at home, but uh, you've, you've got such a magical collection of swords on your back wall. I just, I love looking in all the books. It's, it's fantastic. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm enamored. <laughs>
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Stephanie. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. And yes, you'll be glad to know that the interview with um, Andrew went ahead as planned, and he will be coming on the show quite soon. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Mike Prendergast, primarily about his translation of Pietro Monte's Exercitorum Atque Artis Militaris Collectinea, otherwise known as the Collection of Renaissance Military Arts and Exercises. Mike is also the founder and head instructor of the Historical Combat Academy in Dublin. And we get into all sorts of areas, including starting a club, why you might want to start a club and how to go about doing it, as well as getting into the weeds with Monte's specifics. So you don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Also, I would be very grateful if you would pass this episode, if you particularly enjoyed it, on to anyone who you think might also enjoy it. If every listener brought one friend to the show, we would double our listenership overnight. And every little helps. So thanks for listening and I will see you next week.